Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, September 19th by Pastor Rod Heppel. Today is the first sermon in our Fall 2021 series entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Today we're starting into a new sermon series that's going to last right through until Advent, which is November 28th. We're going to be studying the book of Acts, not the entire book, but between now and then, that's only 10 or 11 weeks. We're actually going to be looking at the first 10 chapters. Then we'll take a break for Christmas and come back to Acts again in the new year, where we'll pick up the story and follow the Apostle Paul with all of his missionary journeys. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you know that our theme for kickoff Sunday was live it out. And what we were talking about there was about living out our faith. And the emphasis was with a greater sense of boldness, that we would be aware of the people in our community, where we live, people in our own family, and not just aware of them, but then intentional about trying to reach them with the exact same grace and love of Jesus Christ that we ourselves have been saved by. So I posed the question last Sunday um, this way. If Sardis Fellowship were to ever close their doors, would it make any difference in our community? Like, would anyone know and would anyone care? Now, this past week, our leadership team came together with just one of our regular meetings that we were having, and we began talking about the designations for our Thanksgiving offering, which is just coming up in about four or five weeks. And when we were talking about that, there were options of ways in which we could spend the money. Uh, this facility needs some improvements, there's technology upgrades and stuff like that, and we were talking this around, but one of the ideas was to take 20% of that offering and give it away. Kind of like a tithe, just take it and give it to our community in some kind of project or need that's out there that, that God lays on our heart. Give it away. And you know, we kind of thought about that, but what about if we come to the end of the year and we really could have used that 20% to end in the black? And as this team discussed that, they came to the place of saying, no, We believe that God wants us to look outward. We believe that God wants us to reach our community. And we believe that when we're generous, God will take care of our home front. And so they made the decision to give 20% away. So the next day, I come into work and I walk through the doors and Mike Vandenbosch, our office administrator, is here. And he says, oh, Mr. Rod, have you seen my good news email that I sent to you? And I said, no, I haven't yet. What's the news? And he said, well, we had a donation of $11,000 that came in (laughs) in the morning. And it just blew me away because there I was immediately thinking of the night before when we were considering, can we trust God if we're going to be generous by looking outward? If we're going to be bold and give money away to something that says we care about our community and we want to reach you with the love of Jesus Christ, God, will you take care of us? And the answer is yes. Now, to be clear, um, I know nothing about who gives what in this church and I never want to. No one in our church knows who gives what except for a couple of people who do the data entry and the writing of the receipts that go out. Who gives what isn't the point. The point is that God honors a church that is about his mission in the world. And I believe that he does take care of us as we continue to honor and glorify his name in our community. So it's with that kind of boldness that we want to be living out our faith today. And as we get into the books of Act, book of Acts, you're going to see that's exactly what they were doing. These were a people who, whose hearts had been changed by Jesus Christ, and they wanted to bring glory to God. And they did that by seeking him first, right? Like centered in Christ. But then they were looking outward. Uh, they were generous with their finances. They were bold in their testimony. And that's what it means to live it out. That church was looking outward 
and we at Sardis Fellowship want to look outward as well. Here's what the Acts story says, though. They didn't lead people to Christ in the sense that they won them. They shared the message and God added to their number. So we always want to keep that straight too, that we have the privilege of pointing people to Jesus, but it is God who does the work in their hearts and lives. So I'm excited to be starting this new series. I want it to inspire us, and for sure it's going to stretch us as well as we dig into this gospel that's gone out to the ends of the earth. Now I've titled this sermon series, You Will Be My Witnesses, and it comes right out of Acts 1 verse 8. The words of Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to actually start to see that this framework of the gospel first coming to Jerusalem and then out to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth is kind of a lens of how the gospel progresses outward from that center. Uh, Someone's taken the time to take a map and kind of draw these concentric circles, starting with Jerusalem, which is the city, right? The Zion, the temple of God, the center of Judaism, right there in the middle. And then Judea, the province, and then out to Samaria, the country, and out to the ends of the world. So uh, watch for that, that lens. But here's the point I want you to also understand. This language that Jesus just gives to them in Acts 1.8 and also in 1.6, isn't just completely out of left field like the disciples have no context for this. It's rooted in the Old Testament. And what Jesus is doing is actually bringing to light the understanding of what was meant in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel about what it was to to be the kingdom of God. And so we see these elements uh, in Acts right here in the first... um, the first chapter, is that it's about the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is a sign for the restoration of Israel, which God will use for the salvation to the Gentiles all the way to the ends of the earth, and what? And you will be my witnesses. So that concept is not new. It just has new light for them. Now, Isaiah 32.15 says, the Spirit is poured out from on high. And Isaiah 49.6 says, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. So you have that restoration language. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So you see Jesus picking up on this language and I'm sure the disciples are going, oh, oh, that's what that meant. We thought it was just for us, the nation of Israel, but now we're seeing that God's plan, God's kingdom goes well beyond just the restoration of Israel. And then finally in Isaiah 43.10, He says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. So Jesus takes that Old Testament message and he he breathes new life into it. He actually helps them understand what this really means. And he invites them to be a part of it. That the coming of the Holy Spirit that we're going to talk about next week is all about the restoration of Israel, which is all about the nation of Israel being a witness and a voice of the kingdom of God. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, let's uh, start by looking at some of the aspects of the book of Acts uh, before we get into the actual text and read it. So, first of all, the title, Acts. Um, It means actions or activity. So, often it's referred to as the Acts of the Apostle. At one time, that was the original title of this book. 
Uh, which is true. There's nothing wrong with that title except for it's actually more accurate to think about the fact that really the book is about the activity of God through the disciples or through the apostles. So as long as we're really understanding that it, you know, the power isn't in and of the disciples themselves. It's God who comes and demonstrates his power and then utilizes the apostles. Acts is a narrative. And if you read it, it reads like a story. It's a great story. In fact, it's, it's, it's exciting. I mean, there are things going on in this book that make you just scratch your head and go, what? You're kidding me. What is this, the coming of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and, and the power that comes out of that and the boldness to witness? But it's also filled with things like, you know, certain stories where, which seem triumphant, where a person gets uh, healed or the disciples get released from prison. That's triumphant. But then it's also filled with tragedy, where there's death and persecution and, and that element. And so this story just has all these elements woven together. And Luke is describing the events that are happening in the early stages of the church as this gospel starts in Jerusalem and works its way out. Now in Acts, you will see a reference a lot to a group called the Apostles. And if, if you're new to Acts and you're not familiar with this language, um, these are the main characters in the story. Uh, it's a reference to the 12 disciples when you see the Apostles. Of course, minus Judas, but the addition of Matthias also means they're back up to 12 disciples or apostles again. <clears throat> so the word apostle means simply a messenger or sent one. And, and that's what these disciples are. Uh, the word disciple means student or follower. And maybe in Luke's mind, he's looking at these disciples and he's using the term apostles a little more intentionally about the fact that they are the ones who are the messengers who are being sent. So maybe that's why he's chosen to pick up so much on that language. Now, of course, God uses more than just these 12 to go out. Uh, we're going to see new names that God uses, names like Barnabas and Stephen and Philip and Cornelius. Uh, but principally, it is through the apostles that they are the preachers. They are the spiritual leaders and the pillars of this faith built on Jesus Christ, who is the foundation of the church. So our author is Luke. Now, who was he? Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Um, Luke was not one of the 12 disciples, which is interesting because God really used Luke to write a large chunk of New Testament scripture. But it was by association to the Apostle Paul where he had um, an inside track to a lot of the stories and what God was doing. And so that was the credibility for Luke being this author. But there's another aspect about who Luke is that gives him credibility. Um, he was known as a medical doctor. The Apostle Paul refers to him as a medical doctor in Colossians 4.14. Um, so a certain level of training and maybe a person who pays attention to detail. Of course, Luke goes on to record this account and it's accurate. He's an investigator. So he's like a journalist or um, a, a person who's a historian taking time to, to write an accurate account of these events that he's investigated. So the, Luke is all these things. Now, in his own words about what he has set out to do, this is how he puts it in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, where he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. This is a reference to the life of Jesus just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. So those are the ones that he has investigated, that he's talked with, that he's uh, gotten their 
<clears throat> ideas on what happened. What did they see? What did they hear? What did they witness? They were servants of the word. Now, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. So you can see there by Luke's own admission that he was a person who really was doing diligence in trying to lay out this message. As a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul, he had to have been a brave man. He went into situations that were extremely difficult. He faced the hardships that Paul faced in many of those situations recorded for us later in this book of Acts. But the whole point is that from the beginning of Christ, he goes to the eyewitnesses. He investigates it so he has an orderly account that he, for what purpose? It seems that he's passing this on to this guy named Theophilus that he might come to faith in Christ. I mean, it, it, it really seems like it's a bit of a record of what happened so that this guy, Theophilus, could come to faith in Christ. Now, I want to make a connection between Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. And you will see that in, in both, um, there's references that link the two. So in Acts 1, right off the bat, Luke says, in my former book, which is a reference to the gospel, and then he mentions the name of Theophilus. He doesn't add most excellent here, but he, it's the same guy. Uh, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach up until the day he was taken up to heaven. So that's where the gospel ends. So you can see that right at the beginning of the book of Acts, he's starting off with a review of kind of the end of the gospel, where he left off. The gospel of Luke is part one. The book of Acts is part two, but it's the same story. It's the story of Jesus Christ. And while Jesus' time on earth is wrapped up because of the ascension, his work has not stopped. And that's what we're going to be learning and reading about in the book of Acts, is the work of Jesus Christ through these disciples. So we ask the question, who is this recipient, this Theophilus, who's referred to as most excellent in Luke's gospel? Um, a Roman official, most likely a governing uh, Roman official who was a Gentile. But he was familiar, it seems, with Judaism because he already had a certain level of understanding or teaching that now Luke is coming around to bring a higher level of credibility to or maybe clarity. Um, it seems, though, again, like I made the point earlier, that Luke is doing this with the intentions of making sure that this guy could know Jesus Christ for himself. And what I think about there is it's evangelistic. And what encourages me is that evangelism happens in different ways, right? So sometimes we think, no, it's just like Paul. Paul went out, Paul was bold, he was an extrovert personality, and he preached the gospel. And we think of evangelism that way. But here we have an example of a person who's different in his makeup. Luke is detailed. He pays attention to detail, and so he writes this accurate account for what purpose? That someone else might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Both are outward-looking. Paul and Luke, both are used of God. Both are giving testimony as they were called to do. So, I just say that because I want you to take comfort in where, wherever you land on the personality scale. Evangelism isn't just tied up in an extrovert personality like the Apostle Paul. Luke wrote it. Paul preached it. How about that? Now, brief summary. So, we have Luke as the author. We have Theophilus as the recipient. We have part one, the gospel, which is the life of Jesus Christ. And we have part two, Acts 
which is the work of Jesus Christ and how the gospel goes out. And of course, all of this being empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let's read our passage today, which is going to be Acts 1, 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So let's just pause for a moment right there. Um, Luke is reviewing the gospel of Luke. So Acts is the first introduction part here. It's just kind of like bringing up to speed. But I want us to pause here for a moment because there's something really critically important here. So here are the elements that he's just picked up on uh, that are also in, in Acts, I mean in, in Luke at the end. Um, after his suffering, he presented himself to the disciples. He gave many convincing proofs of his resurrection. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He commanded them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for God's gift. And that gift is the Holy Spirit with whom they would be baptized. Now, do we remember how the Gospel of Luke ended? No, so let's just take a look at that for a second because we're going to see these elements. Jesus appears to his disciples. Verse 36, while they were still talking. So this is right after the resurrection of Christ, at the end of Luke's Gospel, Luke 24. While they were still speaking, talking, the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and fright, frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you, I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Okay. That's how the Gospel of Luke ends. It's important for us to catch the flow here between the Gospel and the ascension of Christ and the words, the last words he gave to the disciples and now what's about to happen at the beginning of Acts. Because, you see, the book of Acts is not going to make sense unless we understand what happened to turn the disciples' hearts. They did a complete 180. You know, they, they went from thinking that Jesus was dead to now being these bold proclaimers of the gospel. And so we need to understand the change that took place. 
Now, there's two principal things that brought about this change in the disciples so that they could be a bold witness. The first one is that they met Jesus. They didn't just hear about it. They didn't even just see him. I mean, they met with him. They ate with him. They were together with Jesus again. And that is a key, key factor in them going, huh, we just can't deny the resurrection of Jesus. So the first thing is that they met Jesus. The second thing is that the Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit came to live within them, empowering them to have a boldness that they didn't have in their own flesh, their own strength. So I want us to note a few things about the passage of Luke here because I think it's really critical for our own faith journey if we too are going to be involved in being witnesses of Jesus. So the thing I want us to see is the realistic way in which the disciples process meeting Jesus after his death. Um, They were frightened, it says, because they thought they were seeing a ghost. Well, you know what? I mean, that's a pretty good deduction. I mean, that's one of the options I might come up with. Like, am I just seeing kind of a figure of Jesus or am I really meeting Jesus? And then Jesus says, why are you troubled? Why do these doubts rise in your mind? Well, they rise in their mind because this is beyond our human understanding. Something here is happening that is not normal in our human experience. You see, those disciples were really convinced of his death. Um, They watched him be beaten. They watched him be killed when he was put on the cross. They saw his body hang limp. They saw him breathe his last. They saw the spear thrust into his side and the water and blood that flowed out indicating his death. And then he was taken and he was placed in a tomb. And not just placed there, but a big stone rolled across and locked up so that no one could come and tamper with the bodies. They even put Roman soldiers out front just to make sure no one could come and steal the body. So, you know, they know that Jesus was dead. So why are they troubled by this? And why do doubts rise in their minds? Well, it's just simply because it's beyond their understanding and they need, they need real proof. They need just maybe a little bit more. So Jesus says, look at my hands, look at my feet. Well, what's he referencing? Well, you know the scars I have from those nails that were driven through my flesh right here, here. Touch me and see. I'm not a ghost. Would have it been enough for you to have Peter go over and touch Jesus and then say, hey, you know what, everyone, it's real. It's really Jesus. You know, that wouldn't have been enough for me. I'd be lining up. I'd like, I want my turn, right? I want my turn. I want to touch him for myself. I want to pinch him and know that he's really there. I don't even just want to trust the testimony of Peter who's, you know, it's that kind of evidence I think that most people want. You want it. I want it. The disciples wanted it. That's why I love the story of Thomas, which isn't recorded for us in in Luke 24. It's recorded in John 20. But Thomas was one of the 12 disciples, and he wasn't with the disciples on the very day of the resurrection when Jesus first met with the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there because Thomas, quite frankly, was done. Right? Like, I mean, three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's over. Everything he had by way of hopes and dreams about Jesus and Messiah and the reigning kingdom of God and the restoration of Israel and overthrowing Rome and all those kinds of ideas that were in his mind were gone. He was now disillusioned and there was no way that he was just going to believe what others told him, that they saw Jesus. So he's not present on that first Sunday when Jesus appears to the other disciples. In his mind, 
Jesus is dead. The game is over. He was a false prophet. I'll go back to living my life how it was prior to Jesus coming. Maybe there's a different Messiah, but this is not it. Now, I am so glad the Bible records the story of Thomas because I think it's the logical conclusion that any one of us would have at that point. Jesus says to the disciples, touch me, and you bet I would have. And that's what Thomas is looking for. There's no way that he's just going to trust the opinion of Peter once again. So here's how it's recorded in John's Gospel when Jesus actually meets Thomas. Then he, Jesus, said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, true enough, uh, we are those people who have not seen and yet believe. But I would say that for myself, a big part of my faith in Jesus Christ is that there were first-hand witnesses who were asking the same kinds of questions that I would have been asking and were looking for the same kind of evidence that I would have been looking for. Thomas finally said, my Lord and my God, now I know who you are. Now I believe it's true. So let's come back now to Luke's story. Um, where after Jesus says, touch me and see, and they, they still kind of are like, we're not quite sure yet. It says because of joy and amazement. And the way I think I understand that is, um, I just can't believe it's true. You know, something like that. Uh, the rational faculties haven't yet been able to grapple with what they're seeing right in front of their eyes, right? So Jesus gives them now yet another level of proof. He says, give me something to eat. So they give him some broiled fish. And he takes that fish and he eats that fish, right? And, and he eats it and he says to them, does a ghost eat like no, a ghost doesn't eat because a ghost doesn't have a body. That's the whole point there. And so Jesus just brings a whole nother level of verification that it truly is him and that he's truly alive in the flesh and not just kind of some ghost-type figure. And then the text tells us in Luke 24 that he goes on to uh, open their minds to help them realize things that they didn't understand before. And that's the part that I was bringing out before about the Old Testament. Now they're starting to understand what it meant to be uh, the restoration of Israel and the kingdom of God and what God's plan was. You know, it would come through a suffering Messiah, not, not through this reigning king that they had in mind, at least not yet. And they had missed that part, right? It would come through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and then it says repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached. And to who would it be preached? Just to the nation of Israel? No. To the ends of the earth. To the Gentile nations. So yes, it starts with the Jews. It begins in Jerusalem, but it goes out to the Gentiles. So this was the great plan of God for Israel that the people of Israel had missed, and now Jesus is opening their minds so that they understand their Old Testament Bible. Now they're living the new reality of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. These same disciples now have this idea in mind that their calling is to take the message, to bear witness, to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. They were disillusioned. They were floundering disciples. How did it come to be that in the book of Acts we're going to see these courageous and bold men and women of God taking out the gospel message? Well, it's because of the resurrection and the empowering of the Holy Spirit that they became these kinds of witnesses. So you can see how Luke's gospel ends and how Acts begins right away picking that up. Let's read Acts 1 
verses 6 to 9, and finish off to verse 11. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Pause right there for a moment. Um, They still had in mind probably the literal kingdom of Israel type idea. It's not that they're wrong, it's just they're not completely right about the understanding of it. They're going to grow in that understanding. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for asking the question. He just says, it's not for you to know the time. So he says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. And I think that that's really important for us to understand as well, that we don't set times and dates, right? That is something on the God side. Let's just be ready and let's be about the business of of Christ that he's called us to be. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, don't get misguided about times and dates. Just be about the work that I'm calling you to be about. And after he said this, he was taken up before them, before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. A lot of references to Old Testament thought here. Uh, Daniel, the cloud, uh, the whole uh, Shekinah glory of God hiding us from the full presence of God, Jesus goes back to his heavenly dwelling. Verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Again, these questions, you know, we know why they're standing there looking into the sky. They're still going, what's going on? Is he going to come back or is he gone for good or what's going on here, right? Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking in the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. All right. So, come back. Uh, The book of Acts is picking up right where the gospel left off, the ascension of Jesus. So what's today's sermon about? Today's sermon is about the fact that the disciples were being called to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that changed everything. Once they knew it was true, Now, they were ready to tell other people about it. This witness idea is actually a very powerful proof of the resurrection of Christ, which is the very thing that matters most in our faith. Because if the resurrection isn't true, then there's no savior. There's no good news gospel message. There's, we really have nothing to our faith. Just what? Rules and regulations? The Christian faith is not about rules and regulations. It's about having a right relationship with the living God through the one who came as the son of God who died on the cross and rose to life, conquering sin and offering us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. All of that is wrapped up in the resurrection. But the resurrection is true. So there is forgiveness of sins. There is a kingdom of God. And there is eternal life. And and it's the witness of the disciples that give it validation, the resurrection. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it to the Corinthians that he was trying to win to Christ, and and some of them had come to faith in Christ, and he reminds them of the importance of this witness. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So what's at the core of that gospel? He goes on. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And now this part. And that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. What's he trying to say? He's trying to say, if you don't believe what I'm telling you or writing to you, then you can still actually go find those people. There's more than 500 of them. They're still alive today. Go check out my story if you don't believe me. Whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Some have died. Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one who's abnormally born. Now, some of you listening today need to stop doubting and believe. That's what Jesus said to Thomas, and that's the message for some today that are watching this and going, yeah, I've never actually believed in the resurrection. I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But most of you watching today will say, yeah, no, I I do believe in the resurrection. I've experienced the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ because I trusted him. I'm inviting you into the process. Will you be part of passing it on and be a witness, just like those first disciples were called to be a witness? Now, we're a witness in a different way. The first disciples were for sure the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They had that in their hip pocket. I'm not Thomas. I wasn't there. I'm not Peter. I wasn't there. But I trust the fact that they were. They asked the kind of questions I would have asked. They needed the kind of evidence I needed. I believe them. And I believe them because they have recorded for us multiple eyewitnesses. And that turns into transformed lives where these same disciples who are floundering and disillusioned become bold and courageous in sharing this message. Of course, all through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So as we go through Acts, we're going to learn from them what it meant to trust God as they stepped out of their comfort zones and shared this message. Sometimes thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. Other times, landing them in prison, and even for some, being killed for their faith. So I'm asking you, if those first first disciples had not been faithful with passing on that message, you would not be following Jesus Christ today. That's how it happened. It's been passed on and passed on and passed on and passed on, and here you are. And I'm inviting you as we go through Acts to consider, are you going to be part of passing it on? You too are a witness of your own experience of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your own life. And for a person out there that you're trying to share Christ with who goes, I need a little more evidence, you can take them to the scriptures. You can show them the testimony that is there at the end of Luke's gospel and the end of John's gospel, at the beginning of Acts 1. You can look at the eyewitness testimony and point those people to that and let them wrestle with the evidence that they've been given. So I invite you, be a part of this story. Be a part of passing it on because God's mission has not changed until Christ returns in the same way that he's gone. He's coming back again. And when he comes back again, we need to be about his mission in this world. So Sardis Fellowship, I invite you. Let's be bold. Let's look outward. Let's look to our own families and neighbors and community where we work and play and whatever and just realize we need to be aware that these people need to know Jesus Christ. And I hold this message myself. Let's pass it on. I'd like to pray. Father, give us that kind of empowering by your Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us as he did in those early disciples. And you empower us if we trust you. So may we step out in faith, trusting you, believing that at the moment that we share Christ, you will give us words to speak, that we could point people to Jesus who's resurrected to life, offering through repentance the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. What a story. What a message. What a hope. Help us to share it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. Have a great week. I don't have a question for you this week except this. Will you be a part of passing it on?
God bless you. See you next Sunday. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.